0: Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast. We've got an exciting conversation today with Deepen Parak from Courtside Ventures. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to remind everybody to like and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Go to our website, sportsloft.co and sign up for our newsletter where you can get information on the merging of sports technology and media. And also follow us on social at Sports Loft HQ. So... Today we're going to be talking uh, to an investor for their view of the sports and entertainment industry and we couldn't have a better guest than Deepen. Deepen has a long and storied history. I was recently looking at his LinkedIn and aside from being a partner at Courtside Ventures, he holds no less than 11 other concurrent positions as either a board member or investor advisor, etc., which we'll be talking to him about. But T-Pen, it's fabulous to have you on the sports love podcast thank you very much for joining us
1: yeah awesome thank you for having me on uh, excited to uh, to finally make this happen
0: um i, I alluded to, to how busy a man you are earlier uh, and we'll get into kind of the the challenges of juggling all of those uh, all of those various roles but um give us in your own words a little bit about who you are who courtside ventures are and what you do on a I mean, I know a day-to-day basis is probably not realistic because no day is, is the same as the other, but what you do for Quartzside.
1: Quartzside Ventures, were an early stage fund. We invest in pre-seed, seed, series A companies across a couple key verticals. And that's sports, collectibles, gaming, and wellness. And we got our start in 2016. That was our first fund. Uh, you know, the genesis of the fund certainly predated that. But we kicked off the first fund in 2016, um, second fund in 2019. Um, Really the story behind Courtside was that one of my partners, Vasu, uh, out of his college dorm room at UPenn had started a company called Crossover. Crossover was a video data and analytics business. But one of his biggest challenges, despite having raised close to $30 million for his company, was that it was really difficult to pitch VCs. This is a time when most VCs you know, were interested in sports, but not necessarily investing heavily in sports because the definition of sports was really narrow. It was more sports tech oriented than sports and sports adjacent businesses. And so uh, it was really his uh, brainchild initially in creating Courtside in Fund One in partnership with uh, Dan Gilbert, owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, and also WPP and uh him and i came together in 2015 and officially launched courtside in 2016. and you know out of that first fund the goal was really to show ourselves the market our lps that there were real venture scale businesses in the world of sports wellness and gaming and so through that we we've been really fortunate to have backed companies such as uh, the athletic which was acquired by new york times earlier this year StockX, which, you know, is now valued at several billion dollars, uh, 100 Thieves, which is- Regular
0: customer over here. <laughs> love, love, love my trainers or oh, sneakers, oh, I should say.
1: Love it. Appreciate it. Um, 100 Thieves, which is one of the uh, leading esports brands and teams globally, just won the world championships. Freeletics, which is one of the largest fitness apps in Europe. FutureFit, which is a large fitness company in the US and and several others. So that's a bit of, of the background on Courtside Ventures. The way, you know, day to day, to your point, varies greatly. You know, our focus as a fund is we invest in many cases, the earliest stages of a business. We invested, you know, pre-launch, pre-product in, in individuals all the way through to companies that are doing 10 million plus in revenue. So our, our spectrum can can vary but we, at its core, are early stage investors, and we like being uh, among the first investors in in several of the investments we make.
0: So a bunch of really interesting things to uh, to pick out from there. I'll start here. Um, you launched your first fund in 2016. You raised the second fund in 19. Obviously. Times changed quite radically and drastically um, immediately after uh, you raised the second fund. How have you seen that the market develop over that time? You know, you said that people couldn't really see the market potential for sports or sports adjacent businesses outside of tech. How focused are VCs on the TAM of sports and do they value it in the right way? And how have you seen that market movement over the past uh, seven years?
1: Yeah, I think that... Really what we realized early on is the consumer sentiment is shifting, right? When you look at a younger consumer, the way they interact and engage with sports, whether it's live streaming through audio, you know, how, whether they're fans of teams versus players, what they view as sports, gaming, esports versus traditional sports. These were all areas that were dramatically shifting. And there was no dedicated capital behind those massive trends. So ultimately, what we do as Courtside is we invest in the shift in consumer spend, engagement, and interests. That's essentially how we sum up what we invest in at Courtside. You know, we are not sports tech investors at the end of the day. We do not view ourselves as sports tech investors. We view ourselves investing in the proliferation of sports as a category and all the growth areas uh, that surround that. And so our start came in sports, but if you look at what we invest in today, so we look at everything from youth sports, media, uh, sports betting, collectibles, which is its own category. You have everything from StockX and sneakers down to other collectible categories like watches, sports trading cards, other vertically focused marketplaces, all the way down to the world of Web3. So we've invested quite heavily in and around the world of not individual NFTs, but platforms and infrastructure around Web3. Uh, And then you look at gaming. Gaming six years ago was more esports oriented. Now we have a very deep focus through our partner Kai, whose career is in gaming, looking at IP and tech tools and infrastructure in gaming and skill-based real money gaming. And so our DNA is still in and around sports, but we are looking at the future of what we think a individual consumer will be interested in or spending their money around.
0: And so when you look at these investments, clearly there's a, Whilst it is sports focused and in the sports industry, there are a huge amount of variability in terms of the revenue streams, the way that these things are monetized, the way that they're actually brought to market, the types of audiences that they're appealing to. So you guys must have quite a wide range and spectrum of capabilities to be able to evaluate all of that. Yep. How do you evaluate it? Do you have certain key parameters or do you take it on an ad hoc basis? Uh, I'm curious as to how you approach that.
1: Yeah, so... I think every fund is slightly different for us. Being a vertically focused fund, I think we have the, the competitive advantage of being able to see a lot of what's taking place in the market, right? So before we're making an investment decision, we have generally seen several competitors that exist in the market, or at least companies that are playing within a similar space. That allows us to, to pick what we believe are the most compelling teams, technologies, Going after that specific market or pain point. And so, you know, each fund dramatically changes. I would say we're incredibly, incredibly focused on sports betting, real money, gaming, wagering as a whole. That's an area that we think, you know, despite it being fairly mature in the European market um, and increasingly growing in the US, there's a massive global opportunity that exists there. So we've made investments across courtside across that category. So we're investors in uh, the largest DFS company in Brazil. And in Brazil, sports betting is legal but not yet regulated. We're investors in Winzo, which is one of the largest skill-based real money gaming companies in India. And so, you know, our view on international, which is about a third of our fund now, we like taking models that we know really well in the US and then finding what we believe are the most compelling teams in uh, more nascent markets, but where the TAM is incredibly large, and so we are we we're diving in really heavily. Whereas in media, for instance, we've scaled back pretty dramatically. So sports media, uh, we were really fortunate to to be early investors in Alex and Adam, who founded The Athletic. They built an unbelievable business um, and had some of the greatest writers in the world on board, and there were a lot of lessons. I think in terms of how we think about the media industry today, we think media is just incredibly challenging as it stands today. And so we have scaled back on looking at media uh, as a category pretty dramatically. Similarly, fitness and wellness as a whole, we've we've scaled back there as well. We think there are a lot of uh, headwinds that exist in the market today, that it's no fault of the businesses themselves as much as it is, is consumer sentiment. Right? So when you think about the consumer sentiment, investor sentiment, that's dramatically shifted over the last six, nine months after coming out of an unbelievable growth period for a lot of the fitness industry. So we've scaled back a lot on digital fitness, connected hardware in terms of new investments. We're obviously still very supportive and very bullish on what we're already investors in, uh, but we're looking a lot more at wellness as a category. So nutrition, a lot of other areas that we think there's a lot of growth opportunity and still fairly nascent. So, Every fund within the world of sports, collectibles, gaming, and wellness, we go really deep into a couple of areas. You know, our goal is to go talk to as many companies as we can, understand the market landscape, and ultimately make investments in areas we think we can be really helpful to the founders.
0: Mm. And do you take the funds that are raised and allocate them already specifically across those various verticals? Or is it one big pot that you then choose depending on how uh, how the opportunities come to you?
1: It's not a hard and fast allocation, but at the beginning of every fund, we go in having a certain allocation that we believe will be broken down across each of the four key verticals for us.
0: Um, Some element of diversification to ensure that you're hitting most of the different markets.
1: Yeah, exactly. But we're thematic investors at the end of the day that take a hard look at what's happening in the macro world. And so we we will take what's happening in the macro world, and that certainly heavily influences the way we think about our uh, allocation across our verticals. So if we don't think a certain area is going to be as valuable or see as much momentum over the next five to seven years, we're happy to scale back. That's something that we think, again, as a vertically focused fund, gives us that opportunity being able to see everything that's taking place in the market.
0: And so I'll take you back to what you said earlier about the marketplace starting to shift a little bit. We've come out of a period of, uh, whilst it was very difficult personally for a lot of people, incredible growth in the financial world and in venture capital world, which was formerly described on one of our podcasts as frothy. I am seeing that sort of dry up a little bit and uh, funders starting to get a lot more focused on what they want, what the growth potential is and what the exit looks like. So how are you experiencing it from your end? Are you feeling that shift as an opportunity to go out and maybe secure some deals that you might not have been otherwise able to secure? Or is it time to be a little bit more prudent while inflation starts to ramp up all over the place and political uncertainty is, uh, is, is rife um, in, in the Western world?
1: I think any investor who's not somewhat cautious in this market is, is probably going to have a really difficult time a few years down the road let's call it what it is over the last three, four years, every investor is overpaid for deals that they've done. There are varying degrees of overpaying, but everything in this market has been more expensive over the last few years than it was prior. Now, is that overpaying? Yes. Is it detrimental to the market? It depends. I think it depends on the stage of the business. If you look at most of our portfolio, it is, it's early. And so I think we have the benefit of still being relatively early in a lot of our investments in their stages where a significant amount of capital generally has not been raised. Now a lot of them have very significant follow on rounds and so on and so forth. But our our view in the current market is that, and we've spent an exhaustive amount of time over the last three, four months working with a number of our portfolio companies, uh, to ensure that they have the support they need and also are making the decisions that they feel are best for the long-term value of the business. And so we've remained aggressive on new investments, right? Our belief, and if you look at our verticals, let's say, for instance, sports, you look at sports, there's a real clear case to be made that sports betting and wagering actually holds up well in, in a downturn in the market. If you look at gaming and you compare the traditional gaming market versus uh, indices in market downturns, gaming tends to do quite well. Now, is it going to far exceed Pre- previous year's growth? Perhaps not, but it certainly outperforms in previous cycles versus what the traditional markets and indices are doing. And so our, our belief is that we're in a couple verticals that we believe have tremendous continual growth. And we're early stage investors at the end of the day, right? Our time horizon on each investment is not one to two years, it's seven years, eight years in some cases. It's nothing that people haven't heard or read already but we've certainly believe uh, and continue to believe that some of the most incredible companies for the next decade or generation will be built during this downturn. They're, the amount of talent has not shifted. There's an incredible amount of talent coming out to build companies. Um, you know, Over the last month, I would say hiring has actually gotten a little easier than it was in the previous six months. I wouldn't say it's by any means uh, easy, but it's gotten easier. For some companies, especially if you're a company that's continued to perform really well over the last three, four months, there's a flock to that. Right. And so I believe if, you know, if you're a company that is sustained quite well, no matter what, you have likely made cuts. Everyone has made cuts, or majority of companies have made cuts. I think the fall will be worse than what we've seen the last three, four months. Not from a, public markets, that's not something that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm smart enough around, but when I think about private companies, um, what might transpire in the fall going into Q1 next year, a lot of companies, you know, across the board have raised capital internally over the last three, four months they've done inside rounds, you know, some at flat valuation, some slightly higher, some slightly lower, some significantly lower. but now is going to come time where they have to go outside to the market. And when that happens, I think you know, traditionally over the last three, four months, we've seen a lot of cuts and layoffs, but we haven't seen a lot of companies going to zero. I think there is a decent chance that we'll see a number of companies completely go to zero, or we'll see fire sales, much more so than we've previously seen. I don't know exactly when that will happen, but certainly would not be surprised at all uh, if that were to take place over the next three to six months, before we start to see more clearing out. But are, we are planning for this current environment to last for at least a few years. And we're telling our portfolio companies the same.
0: And so you mentioned about the management of the portfolio companies. I mentioned, I mentioned in the intro that uh, a simple LinkedIn count showed me that you're on 11 boards or uh, advisor slash investor on top of your role with uh, Courtside. How do you manage to prioritize time, um, especially in a, in a in a time like this where um, portfolio companies are going to have to be careful about how they grow, where they grow, where they make their bets? Yep. Um, how how do you prioritize your time, and how do you divide between allocation of the existing funds, management of existing portfolio companies, and also management of the courtside team, which I assume is 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 no small task? Yeah. Uh, for you guys, how do you go about doing that?
1: Yeah. So we're really judicious at courtside. So one. Uh, if you look at all those board seats, those are through courtside. So they're not independent of courtside. So it, it goes hand in hand with what we're seeing at and doing at courtside. So we're really judicious about board seats. Some of those board seats, like you'll see the athletic, obviously they've been acquired. So no longer active. So 11 is is probably, I'm just counting in my head. 11 is probably far more than is actually active today, but We only lead one in every three investments we do at Courtside on average. Part of the logic is in some cases, we're better as a strategic. And in other cases, we feel we should be a good lead candidate for the round. And so we want to be flexible capital for founders at the end of the day. We want to back what we believe are the best team, best founders going after the largest pain points. And so in some cases, we invest and our ownership may look smaller than traditional. In some cases, it's outsized. Our board seats are, are far less than what you traditionally see at funds for that reason. You know, I think currently we're only on one board now out of our entire fund one. Fund two uh, obviously uh, still sit on a handful of boards, but our goal is never to overextend ourselves to a point where it's detrimental to the portfolio companies or to our ability to be able to work with the portfolio companies in an adequate way. And so... If you look across the board, we've now invested in close to 80 companies uh, across Courtside. But in terms of number of deals we've led, it's it's far less. And so t- time management is uh, something I will probably never master. I think it, it ebbs and flows so regularly. For us, I think seasonality matters, time of year matters. So if you look at the fall, fall is always incredibly busy with new investments, with existing portfolio investments. The way I generally prioritize time is um, existing portfolio takes precedent. We're obviously always looking for new investments, but we we need to be very, very judicious and focus on the investments we've already made. And so, you know, we, we've been very active over these last few months, of continued to make new investment, and that will probably continue. I would say if I had to guess, the fall will, will actually slow down our pace on new investments. would like to see the market shake out a little bit more. And we've also made a number of investments in areas that we had set out to make. And so once we've kind of exhausted that a little, we're a little bit more sit back and wait on the market conditions to see what comes out.
0: And unpack that element that you talked about a little bit for me about being a lead investor versus strategic. You're leading about a third of your your investments. Um, uh, Obviously, there's uh, a lot of strategic value that you guys can bring either through the portfolio companies or through the network that you guys have. Also, we're talking to a lot of people who are – not necessarily at the coal face of the investment uh, of the investment world. They're, uh, mm-hmm. they're either within teams or within rights holders uh, running commercials. So unpack that for us a little bit from your point of view. What does it mean to courtside to be a lead? What do you do in that scenario? What do you look at as a strategic? And how do you pull those strings in order to bring the best success to the portfolio companies from those positions?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the main difference, I guess, high level between a lead and a non-lead in terms of the venture world, is someone who is pricing the deal versus not. And when you're pricing the deal, you're generally heavily involved in the formation of the legal documents, a lot of the rights, governance, board seat that's generally associated. And when you're not leading, you're still maybe reviewing those documents, but you are certainly more passive in that process. And the terms are the terms for the most part and you're going to participate along with what the lead and what the company sets. And so for us, it varies, right? There are certain areas that we set out where we say, if we find a company and founders in a specific area, we think we should lead this because we may have really strong expertise, either through our own previous experiences, companies we've already invested in or sit on the boards of, or because of our LP base. And our LP base is all very strategic. So we have, um, you know, several professional sports team owners across all of the US, Europe as well. We have a number of corporates. So I think we have six corporations across the US, Europe, Asia, and then we have a number of strategic individuals who are also uh, in these verticals.
0: Just for the just for the purposes of the listeners in case in case it's not clear, LP stands yep. for limited partners, who are the people who invest in the fund who provide the money that you as courtside ventures then go and invest in certain portfolio companies.
1: Yep. That that's absolutely right. You know, our, our goal, and we were really fortunate with our early LPs in fund one and progressively in fund two. What we realize is is the value that we can gain for our portfolio companies through our LP bases. Is massive. And not only that, we hope and pride ourselves on their ability to provide value back to the LPs as well. And so it's a two way street, but that allows us to get into certain investment opportunities, allows us to be really more hands on in certain cases, more value add. But we're not, because we're not a billion dollar fund, nor is that the goal for for courtside, we don't have to lead every round. And our goal really is to to come into a company and come into a new investment and help wherever the founders feel as though we can be most valuable. And so we try to stick to that as much as we can. I mean, to give you a sense, even when we don't lead, we still talk to certain founders a lot. So just because we're not on the board doesn't mean I'm not or Kai or Vasu or Oliver not regularly talking to portfolio companies whenever they need help, or just checking in and seeing if there's are certain areas we should be thinking about for them. So, you know, lead, certainly there's more involvement. Uh, even when you're not leading, you know, the goal is still the same, which is to be valuable to the companies because our reputation lives and dies by the value we provide.
0: Mm-hmm. And speaking about that, how do you guys as as partners, the GPs in the fund, how do you allocate those businesses between you—is it by vertical and expertise? Is it sometimes by who brings the deal in and uh, uh, and, and and sort of the internal lead? Um, talk us through how that works.
1: Everyone works on everything, uh, but there is a more expertise in certain areas among certain partners. So our partner Kai, who's been in the gaming industry for twenty plus years, he oversees everything in the gaming world, and quite frankly, uh, you know his expertise is the best filter right in terms of anything we're seeing in that market anything that's happening in and around the collectibles world uh generally my partner vasu uh is heavily focused in and around uh anything that's happening in sports vasu and i are are both kind of divvying that up i've been focused really heavily around the sports betting side and he handles a lot of the stuff around the technology deeper technology in sports and then fitness and wellness I generally am taking the lead on. But again, we're all involved in everything. And it's a case by case at the end of the day. Sometimes we will have an existing relationship with a founder, but we lean on each other a lot. Our decision-making process is pretty pretty fluid and stringent. We have a you know, certain number of points and criteria that we must get through in order to get to a yes, but every single partner has to vote yes. And so it's unanimous decision-making that we have versus majority. And we all have very good comfort with one another. Um, I've known Kai for several years. Vasu and I have been working together. Oliver's been with us for four or five years now. So it's a really good dynamic that exists across the team that allows us to be uh, pretty fluid and be able to make decisions faster.
0: You can choose to answer this or not. I'm just fascinated by, uh, by how it would work. If you guys disagree, what is it that you tend to disagree on? Do you tend to disagree on valuation? Do you tend to disagree on the terms to get involved on something? Do you tend to disagree on whether an investment should be made or not? I'm curious about the dynamics there and, and, and how it works.
1: Yeah, look, I think there's, there's a lot of respect amongst one another based on our previous backgrounds. And so there's no way we would ever do a gaming deal if Kai doesn't believe it is something we should be doing. And so we we rely on one another a lot for that. Disagreements are are healthy. I mean, look, if if for every deal, there isn't at least some pushback, that means the person who brought the deal in probably isn't presenting enough, right? And so we, we make it so that whoever brings the deal in, it is their essentially responsibility to not only convince, but also to put forth the right information to get everyone else excited on board. And so we've disagreed on valuation. I mean, I think every firm is certainly across the board probably disagreed on valuation. We've certainly in some cases, because of someone's previous experience of having invested in another company or been involved in in the industry, you know, perhaps there's not as much excitement. But one of the biggest challenges of venture investing is is recency bias. Right? And so, also, as a vertically focused fund, you face that, where you see so many businesses that may look the same over and over again, but one of them may end up killing it. And so, how do you know which business is going to be that success? Because you may have seen a hundred that look very similar, and you get in the point where you're like, all right, well, there you have a certain natural bias built in. and so, We're constantly checking one another's biases that exist because that is something that obviously could be detrimental. In some cases, it's good, right? Like to have a bit of that bias or someone who views that bias because they can point out a lot of the challenges and red flags that may exist. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do a deal, but you got to understand why this time might be different.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Thinking about some of your investments and specifically some of the winners, you you guys um, had a great success with the sale of The Athletic, uh, for example. Take us into the mind frame of what is it you saw when you invested, because you invested when there wasn't a lot there, that took you to that level of success? What is it that you're looking for?
1: Yeah, look, any investor who says luck doesn't play a factor in their success is likely somewhat full of shit. uh, Market timing matters. Right, and and we can't. If you look at the difference of probably a twenty twenty one vintage fund versus a twenty twenty two vintage fund or twenty twenty versus twenty twenty two, they might look dramatically different based on when they started or when most of their investments took place. Mm -hmm. And so, I I think there's always you always have to take that into account. I think when we look at something like the athletic, Mm -hmm. um, it's not like we had been dying to find a you know, a regionalized or localized media business. Obviously we'd looked at a handful. What really got us comfortable and got us to invest was the founders. When you look at uh, Alex and Adam, they did not come traditionally from the sports industry. They came from Strava and the understanding they had in building a community was great. Had it been, and this is not, you know, nothing confrontational, But I think our view may have been different if it was someone who had been in the media industry for 30 years building that. And the only reason is they probably would not have thought about going out and building a business from a venture standpoint to raise a tremendous amount of capital, hire the writers and build the best product, right? At the end of the day, what Alex and Adam were tremendous at in the early days was building hands down the best product. Now, if it weren't for the writers would have never existed. And they were very fortunate and they put a really compelling case in front of some of the best writers in the world that they were now focused on building the best product for readers and fans around the world and focus on creating the best content. Don't focus on volume, focus on quality. And so I think that's really what stood out to us. I mean, they were so product oriented and wanting to build the best community and product for sports fans globally. And what started originally in the city of Chicago, then slowly went to Toronto and Cleveland, uh, and then expanded city by city, then national, then you know UK, which they took by storm in the soccer world. Signed up. And you know. <laughs> Signed up day one. <laughs> uh, love it. And, you know, the, the success was, was heavily driven by the incredible writers they had, uh, but always laser focused on building the best product and the best community. And so that, that's what turned us on. I mean, when we invested, I believe they had 1,500 subscribers for the business and maybe 2,000 by the time we end, the round ended up closing. And, but what you saw that was unparalleled was the engagement was ridiculously high. And even though it was early, the early retention numbers were incredible. Uh, and then they grew from 2000 to 25,000 to a hundred thousand all within a year and a half. Wow. Um, and so you, you could just see the amount of momentum that was building. And so we continued investing into the business and ultimately the, the exit earlier this year, you know, was, was great for, for the team and for, for a lot of the investors.
0: How does that moment feel, that exit moment? Because I'd imagine it's a little bit bittersweet, right? I'd imagine it's, it's sweet because there's a great return on investment and you're providing great value to yourselves and to your limited partners. But you're also waving goodbye to a working relationship that has been so productive uh, and so incredible, right? Watching them come from 2,000 subscribers to however many millions they have now. How does that feel?
1: I haven't been able to fully put it into words. Like The Athletic was one of the first investments we ever made out of courtside. And so it certainly spanned our formative years as a fund. I learned a ton from being involved in that business, learned a lot from Alex and Adam. We were very fortunate to be along for that ride. Yeah, it's it's certainly bittersweet, more so from a standpoint of uh, you look back and you see what they were able to build. In a short period of time, uh, the athletic was able to reach 1.2 million paying subscribers in four and a half or five years. And so the, the growth was astronomical. So it, it, it's hard to reflect on in the moment. Uh, I don't think it's still fully struck from, from the impact, but I'm excited to see it go to a place where we'll continue to live on. I think sometimes it's even more challenging where if it goes company that you're uh, investors in goes to a place where the name doesn't live on here, the athletic. I think will be a really instrumental part of continuing to build the New York times Hmm. sports offering and a really incredible bundle uh, for folks. So yeah, I mean, look, it, it it is rewarding. It's bittersweet. It makes you realize that perhaps you're not a total idiot in what you're doing. And so it's a lot of emotions, but it it was a very cool feeling. Hmm. And, you know, Certainly full hats off to what they both built and the incredible team that that was around them from the writers all the way down. But it it was all they're doing. It was an exciting one to be a part of.
0: Awesome. So we got five minutes left here. You got to get to a lunch and I got to go pick up my son from nursery, which is not going to wait. So um, (laughs) we'll wrap it up in a second with two quick questions. The first one is you've talked a lot about the founders and kind of how you look at that. Do you have a template? Do you have an idea of like what you're looking for from a founder? Or is it is it really a case-by-case basis?
1: Uh, always case-by-case. Case. Hmm. Uh, but I would say vertically, it, it changes a little. So in this market, when there are a lot of unknowns, the only known is the founder. Hmm. And so when we're coming in early in a business... A lot of times that's all we can judge off of. Of course, we look at the TAM, we look at the market sizing, we look at the competitive landscape, we look at everything, but really what you're judging and in investing based off in the really early stages is the founder. Right now, it's never been more important hmm. because people who have have the ability, who you think have the ability or proven they have the ability in previous cycles to be able to work through a market like this and continue hiring Raising capital, building product, finding that product market fit accordingly um, is not easy. And so uh, you know for gaming, for instance, if we are investing into a gaming studio of any kind right now, we got to believe that the founders built and run a gaming studio previously. Mm. That is really important. There are a lot of factors that go into building and running and scaling a gaming studio. Um, not having experience there, I think, is is probably harder. Um, now, there's a rule for everything until there isn't, but that is a real interesting point for us on, on the founder side, especially in gaming, and Kyle harp on this heavily. So yeah, there, there's no definitive template, um, and I can throw out a bunch of you know words that describe a founder, which I'm sure a lot of folks have already read or heard of. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's case by case, and we focus on people who we think are uniquely positioned to build something really large.
0: Awesome. And so before we let you go, question that I've asked a lot of people on this podcast, what's your favorite thing about this game, and what's the most challenging for you? What is it, what is it that keeps getting you up in the morning, and what is it that makes you nervous?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is, it's cliche, but I get to work in sports, like... How many people get to work in an industry that uh, they have loved their entire life? And so, you know, I, I feel very fortunate about that. I, I'm excited a lot of days to work. Now, no one's ever excited every single day to work, but I'm excited to get in the office. I'm excited to, to work with founders. I'm excited to hopefully find what we think can be a generational company across our verticals, but most importantly, it is in and around the world of sports gaming and collectibles. Like how, how cool is that? And so I feel very, very fortunate there. So I, I love what we get to do every day and the people we get to work with. Most challenging part, the best or some of the best advice I got early on in my investing career was the faster you get over the fact that you're going to miss out on a billion dollar company, the better the investor you will be. Mm. And You are always, and we certainly have, you're always going to miss out on big opportunities, and it is very easy to harp on those. And I don't get me wrong; I certainly harp on some of the big ones we missed out on. But you don't need you don't need to invest in every winner. You need to invest in a few winners, and so I think that is the challenge. Uh, It's a mental game. You know, we see fifty companies a week. You can't spend an equal amount of time on every single one that comes through. You have to stick with your conviction and your belief in the thematic, in our case, our thematic view that we have on the market and invest according to that. Otherwise getting distracted outside of your lanes is probably one of the biggest challenges of the role. Awesome. Well,
0: thank you very much for joining us to our listeners. If you like what you heard, please remember to like and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on sportssoft.co and sign up to our newsletter for more great content and conversations like today's, and also follow us on social at SportsLoft HQ. All that remains for me to say is a huge thank you to Deepen for joining us today and sharing his insights. Deepen, thank you for joining us in the SportsLoft.
1: Awesome. Really appreciate you having me.
0: Fantastic. And to all of you, we'll see you next time. Have a great day.